Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Again, that's Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here and share the Word of God with you. Uh, Let's pray. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, we give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Lord, come speedily to meet us, O God of our salvation, as we read, listen, Study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off with this premise, what if God exists? It's funny, coming from a pastor, and this is being a church service, and this is the sermon. What if God exists, right? A lot of people ask this question because what we do and how we live and how we respond to things is all based on 
this fundamental question, in my opinion. So, I believe God does exist, obviously, and it can be proven many ways, or it can be understood in many ways. Um, we could take a simple example. A simple example would be, here's this water bottle. Not the water inside, but the water bottle. So, do you all see this water bottle? It's not a figment of my imagination. It's real. So you and I both see this water bottle. It's of substance. Then if this water bottle exists, then it is at least one of three things. One of three things. If this water bottle exists and you're looking at it with me, it's at least one of three things. Number one, it is self-creating. It created itself. And then the water bottle came out. Or it is eternal. It has always existed. Or number three, it's created. Someone or something made it, right? So everything that we see that's existing is one of those three things. I don't think it's self-creating because self-creating is a contradiction. So through the law of non-contradiction, we know that self-creation is an impossibility. So it can't, any, nothing can create itself. Uh, otherwise, there was a time where it wasn't, and all of a sudden it was. So that's a, self, uh, that's a contradiction. So it's one of, one of the two in the end. Is this eternal or is this created? Right? That's the question. I think you may think, like, this is such a stupid question. Obviously, someone made this. Well, then the question goes on. Who made it? And then we go back further. Who made the person that made this? Who made that? And then we go all the way up. There has to be something that initially started the creation. Otherwise, there should be nothing. Philosophically speaking, if there was nothing at any point in time, if at any point in time there was nothing, then there's nothing today. If at any point in time, philosophically speaking, if there was nothing, then there's always going to be nothing. Because out of nothing can't come something. Out of nothing is always nothing. So that means there must be something that's always eternal. There must have been something that was there. Romans chapter 1 and all the Bible, other Bible places like Ecclesiastes or Psalm 14 across the Bible talks about there has to be a God. There has to be something eternal. And no one can really dispute that. In Romans chapter 1 specifically says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse so Paul here is talking about there is a God. If you just think two seconds like we did here, something's created, something that created was cre created it, and it has to go back up. Something has to be eternal because if there was ever nothing, then nothing is. But if there is something, that means something is. And so Ecclesiastes also talks about in the heart of man, God set eternity. Eternity is in our hearts. There's something about the finite that is seeking the infinite. Does that make sense? We look for it in places, whether it's sex, 
drugs, money, alcohol, whatever it is, we look for it in places. We are searching for the eternal. Our, our hearts and our souls want to engage with the eternal. And we're looking, ironically enough, in things that are temporal, in the finite. And Paul says, for although they knew God, they knew something has to be eternal, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory for, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we exchanged what was supposed to be eternal, the thing that we wanted to graft ourselves to that was eternal. We substituted with things that are not eternal, the things that are finite, the things that go away. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none that does good. Mathematicians, biologists, philosophers, science, all scientists of all, all, all kinds of science are coming out now saying that the mathema mathematical, biological, philosophical impossibility of evolution, they're writing things about that, not improbability of evolution, the impossibility of evolution. We even go down to biology. DNA had to have been there for cells to create because, you know, you got to know how to synthesize protein, right? All you biologists know. So DNA... And then it gives it to the RNA, and then, you know, all that stuff happens. Bio 101, you've learned it in, like, high school or junior high school. And to have, to have cells even exist, something needs to have been programmed to tell people how, tell the things inside how to synthesize the protein so a cell is made. But how do you have a cell without the DNA? So how do you have, a, how do you have DNA without a cell? And so people are racking their brains. So now biologists are trying to go into the realm of philosophy and being like, wait, that means that DNA had to exist even before cells. How does a DNA structure exist without a cell? And how do you have a cell without DNA? So out of nothing, nothing. If there ever was a time when there was nothing, then nothing. If God is real... And he is. Then isn't the question not, oh, God is real. Oh, yay. But the question is, which one is he? Right? If God is real, if there's something eternal, the real question is, which one is he? And more importantly, how do we know that the one that we're picking is really God? Maybe you grew up in church. You grew up in the youth group. And you're like, yeah, it's just because... You know, people like Pastor Gene kept on yelling, Jesus is God, and so I just went to church. And now I'm older, so I'm wiser, and I don't think there's a God. I make my own choices. I'm an atheist, you know, that kind of thing. How do you know if the God that we are worshiping is really God? Well, if there was something, and there always was something, then what we know in our hearts is quite incredible. The more you think about it, the more we recognize that the world has fallen, that creation isn't doing what it ought to do. There's something off about the world. You know, because we are doing these things. Our generation is giving itself up over to our lusts, 
our desires, having sex with whoever or whomever we want, whenever, whatever, whatever life stage we're in, thinking greed is good, it's all about money, being able to sing about it, worship it, actually just dance about that. We argue, but then why aren't people happy then? Why aren't you happy? Even if we are thinking, ah, oh, this is the way, and there's something off. And the interesting thing is we're going deeper into it. People don't go, oh, you know, I think alcohol is going to save my problems, so I'm going to drink this alcohol. Oh, it didn't save, my, save me. It didn't make me, actually made me feel worse. You know what I'll do? I'll drink more alcohol. <laughs> and then what happens? It just feels worse and worse and worse. It never gets better. It only gets worse. What we've realized is the world is created. The universe has a beginning. And, I, you know, we could go through all these theories now and, like, this multiverse theory, and then the question ultimately goes up to, what's the first multiverse that created the... What's the first universe that created the next universe? Otherwise, no, no, it's a circle. It's a circle. Everything just created itself, so it's self-creating. It's like, oh, no, that's a contradiction, so uh, I don't know, right? And so we could go through all these things. However, we know that the world is created. There's a beginning. That means there's an end. If there is a beginning and an end, that means it was created. If there is a creator, then there's a purpose. If something that's created doesn't fulfill its purpose, then we know something's off. If I poke a hole in this and water starts leaking out, you're not going to be like, wow, it's beautiful. You're going to be like, there's something off about this. You're not just going to be like, oh, there's water everywhere. Um, it's doing something that it's not supposed to do, and it's not doing something that it's supposed to do. The world is created, and it's fallen. In the Christian world, before Jesus, there's over 4,000 years of record showing that the world is fallen. God created it, but there's a Messiah coming. 4,000 years of record. The Messiah is coming into this fallen world. And by some counts, there are over 300 messianic prophecies written over this span of time in the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies, that means a specific detail that the Messiah will be like this or that in the Old Testament. That's why we see things in the New Testament, like a statement like this in John 19, these things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Some messianic prophecies in the Old Testament were pretty straightforward. Others were more a little indirect. But we see here, we come to this point, and Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of everything. Everything. Not just, hey, Jesus, he's cool, he heals. Not Everything from the creation of the world, from when it fell, the messianic prophecies were proclaimed, and every single prophecy, the claim is, Jesus has fulfilled over 300 of them. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Not only do we see that when we read the Old Testament, but Jesus himself claims it. Jesus isn't just some temporal, like, oh, he was here from 83 to whatever. Jesus is God. 
That's the claim that we've read in the last chapter. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, Truly, truly, which is amen, amen, which means he's verifying this himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham was, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the eternal. That's a monstrous claim. That's an incredible claim. We were thinking just now, this little tiny thought experiment that we had, and you can go on and spend like thousands of dollars and take a philosophy 101 course and do it for a whole six months, whatever it is, but that's all you'll be doing. But uh, you can think about this one, who created this, who created that, who created that, well, what started it all? What started it? What's eternal? And Jesus comes, I am. I am. That's the claim. And if Jesus is, then that's all important. Because now we know what the purpose is, what fallen even means, what we are supposed to fill ourselves with. We know all these things once we see the beginning. People have refused to believe this. Geniuses, brilliant minds, IQs of like a gazillion, whatever it is, and even the late Stephen Hawking would be like, ah, there's no Big Bang. Because even if you think about the Big Bang, it's like there can't be evolution, there's no Big Bang. Uh, even if you think about the Big Bang, then who started the Big Bang? Who went bang and it happened? Like who did that? It's like it, it, it has to be God. He's like, nope, can't believe there's God. So they're, like, toward the end of his life, he started rejecting all these things and people are like, oh, maybe it's aliens, aliens, as if that made any better sense. So next week we're all going to go to Area 51. Uh, we're not. Um, church trip, guys. Uh, anyway, aliens, right? And then scientists got together like, you know what we'll do? We'll send radio waves up into the, up into the you know, sky and space to see if there's any intelligent life. And Stephen Hawking was the one that said, don't send any message outside, guys. Like, keep it all in. Because if there is intelligent life outside, it's most likely, number one, going to be smarter than us, more powerful than us, more technologically advanced than us. And number two, it will be violent toward us or hostile toward us. The chances of that is way greater than like someone who's like, oh, cool, let's go meet people on Earth. They'll come and take the natural resources. And then you have a Hollywood movie. But like, the alternative is do we have any peace at all? If the eternal is not God, do we have any peace at all? And even brilliant minds, when they continue go, to go down the rabbit hole, they will see, oh, no, there's no peace in that. And so Jesus claims to be eternal. This is why we study the word of God. This is why studying the word Christians believe will have Lasting, eternal joy. Studying the Word will have lasting, eternal joy. Why? Because it's the Word of God. It's God's Word to us. Some have said, oh, you know what? The, the, really, people have said this to me. Yeah, you take the Bible too seriously, you know? You don't worship the Bible, you worship Jesus. And like, that's interesting. Uh, can I give you? Can you? Can I give you an example then? So I can say I love my wife, uh, 
Esther, I love her dearly with all my heart. But when she opens her mouth, mm, just can't take it. Don't want to listen to her. Her words, garbage. I don't, I, but I love Esther. Don't, don't tell me I don't love Esther just because I don't listen to what she has to say. Can you say that? It doesn't make any sense at all. The word of God obviously isn't God himself, but the words that God gives us is from God. It's part of my relationship with God. It's eternally important that I understand that what the word of God is saying to me. And that's why we study it as eternal, lasting joy for the believer. So we go to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Look, all right, there's a God. But how do I know you're God, Jesus? How do I know that you are really who you claim to be? Wasn't that the question? Sure, there's God. That makes sense. I get it. But we wish to see a sign from you. Show us that you're God. And at first you might ask, well, what's so wrong with asking God to prove himself that he's God? A lot, actually. A lot. Let's say you saw a celebrity that's pretty famous. Would it be normal for you to go up to that celebrity figure and go, hey, prove yourself. You saw the president walking by and you run up to him and say, hey, prove yourself. Would he be obligated to prove himself? And then you might ask, well, it, it, it depends. It depends. I mean, is the president asking me for something? Isn't he asking me, if he goes, you know, Eugene, I'm the president of the United States, I want you to don this cape and run around like the seven train and act like an idiot. Oh, it's like, is he asking me for something? Isn't it normal for someone to prove to you who they are if they're asking you for something? And isn't Jesus telling people to repent in that sense, right? So you see where my, my thought process is going. Isn't Jesus telling people to repent? So isn't he asking for something? Does he need to prove himself? And I would say no. Asking and commanding is different. Jesus commands people everywhere to repent. Or else what? Or else what? Damnation. Or else what? Damnation. We already saw the woes that were pronounced just before. So who is the onus on if God showed up? Who's the onus on if God showed up? God shows up here. Who's the onus on? Is it on God to prove himself? A lot of us are perhaps mistaken in our view of what it means or our understanding that God's kingdom has come into this world. It's just almost as if we think that if we repent, we're doing God a favor. God, I'll repent. I'll do you this one big one. But you owe me. In that kind of attitude. And with that attitude, we read passages like, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. With that attitude, you read that, and we think that we are the ultimate focus of it all, forgetting to read just the verse before where it says, Rejoice with me. This is the shepherd who found his lost sheep. Rejoice with me. He goes to the people next to him. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
the protagonist of that parable is the man, not the sheep. Now, wouldn't you think something's a little bit off, at least a little bit off, if we started singing songs about the sheep, making the sheep the protagonist? That's why we believe in soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Does God have to prove himself? Absolutely not. The onus is not on him to prove himself, but the incredible part about this is even though he doesn't have to, the incredible part is that he has. He has shown himself. Because of his mercy and grace, it says in the word, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God who is, was, and always will be God takes on the form of a servant in Jesus Christ. And here he is, God in the flesh. And the scribes and Pharisees are asking him, prove yourself, not out of reverence, if that were possible, but to test him, just like the Gospel of Mark says, to test him. And this is how Jesus answers the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So according to Jesus, who's asking for a sign? An evil and adulterous generation. You know, signs actually were given in the Bible, weren't they? Signs were given in the Bible. But they were to strengthen the faith of the timid. Signs were given in the Bible, but they were to strengthen the faith of the timid. It's all throughout the Bible. But you don't demand a sign or threaten unbelief. There was never an instance that, where that happened. Like, you don't go, God, if you don't show me this, I'm not going to believe you. God has always worked to help those that are in need. But he's not some entertainer. He's not a genie. He's not your circus performer where we go dance and he has to dance. That's when you don't make God God, but you make you God. And thus the label, label evil and adulterous generation. Maybe they got rid of their physical idols, but in their heart, they had not. So what now? But he does give them a sign. So first of all, does he have to prove himself? No, but he does show up. Does he have to give them a sign? No, but he does give them a sign. There's In this, you may think, wow, Jesus is being very savage here, but there's incredible mercy. If you go line by line, every line is like he doesn't have to, but he does. That's grace. He does give them a sign. What's the sign? The sign of Jonah. What is that? Three days and three nights. That's an emphatic way of saying three days, right? Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. Jesus will be buried. This is in the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to. He goes, eh. And then he gets swallowed by this fish. Stays in there three days. And they get spit out. And then in Jonah chapter 3, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And he goes, Go to Nineveh and tell them everything that I tell you. So Jonah goes, Okay. You got spit out by the fish. Fine. I'm going to go. And Nineveh, it says here in verse 3, chapter 3, it says, Nineveh was a great city. It was so great that if you wanted to walk across Nineveh, it took three days. 
So if you just walked, it would take three days. I remember going from, I think, um, midtown to downtown, and it took like 15, 20 minutes. Times that by a lot. Anyway, and so it, take, it takes three days. So that's what it says in verse 3. So imagine this was the span of three days. What does the Bible say? The Bible goes, the Bible says this, Jonah began to go into the city, so he's there, and he goes a day's journey, one day's journey, and he goes, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. 40 days, Nineveh's going to be gone. And he goes from here, if that's the end of Nineveh, three days journey, he goes, 40 days, Nineveh shall be gone. I'm tired. Okay, time to go. And guess what the people of Nineveh do? They repent. They hear and they go, okay. They believe God. They call for a fast. They put on these clothes that showed and signify mourning. And it says in the Bible, from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is what Jesus is referencing. And then he goes, but someone greater than Jonah is here. The message is more important. It's more urgent because someone greater than Jonah is here. In verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. The Ninevites may have had Jonah come to them, but the queen of Sheba, as it's recorded in 1 Kings, had heard of Solomon's wisdom. Wow, this guy is wise. She traveled, it says, from the ends of the earth just to have an audience with him. And when she came, she looked at every single detail, how each chair was set up, looked at the placement of the chairs, who sat where, how they were dressed, and then she asked him every question that she had. And Solomon had answered him, answered her, excuse me. And after all that, this is what she says in 1 Kings. The report was true that I had heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I had heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, this is what she says, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. She recognizes God is real and it's the God of the Israelites. And Jesus goes, but someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Solomon is standing in front of them. Someone that they couldn't even refute. They would ask him a question, he'd crush them with his wisdom. And yet still unrepentant. Still hard-hearted. And this is not the end. Jesus continues. And when we read it, some people would be like, whoa, what's this about, right? When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. I want to tell you, this is all connected. This is connected. It's just, just random. Jesus going, oh, Jonah, Queen of Sheba, let me just talk to you about unclean spirits and demons for a second. No, it's, it's connected, right? 
So apparently when a demon leaves a person, it goes to, des to, like, goes to desert areas to find rest. Why does it do this? I have no idea. It just says that. <laughs> I don't know, but apparently demons need rest too because they're not God. But here we see that the demon finds no rest no matter where he goes or where it goes. Then it says in verse 44, I'll, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. We call that moral reformation. There's a moral reformation in the person. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will, will it be with this evil generation. Then it says the word is my house. That's what the demon says. It's my house. Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? And here the demon comes back and sees a moral reformation, an illusion that man has that he is in control of his own life. However, now we see that he is open to all kinds of attack and invasion because the man's house is empty. The demon then goes out and brings seven other demons back, more evil and wicked than itself, thereby making the man worse off than even before. This isn't just some random saying Jesus is inserting. This is part of the same discourse that Jesus was referring on when he was referring to judgment and the sign that the Pharisees and scribes were asking for because he ends it with, so will it be with this evil generation. In John chapter 8, again, I want to refer you to that chapter. As Jesus says to them, if God were your father, because they go, you know, you know who's in my house? It's, it's God because I'm a son of Abraham. That's who's in my house. And he goes, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You know why? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. There is no middle ground, friends. There is no middle ground. Your house is either occupied by God and he is king, or it will be occupied by demons. The call to repentance and to obey God isn't a call that's optional. It's not the, it's not the choice between you can either get a Camry or the Accord, but I think the Accord is a little better. That's not it. The options are between truth and a lie. Life and death heaven or hell and jesus isn't being mean here his seriousness and urgency are to match the direness of the situation if someone's about to fall or if someone's about to like you know some, someone's about to fall and step on like let's say there's 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 like a, a needle sticking up and joe you're just walking along i'd be like joe watch out there's a needle if that needle was poison and joe's gonna die i would i wouldn't say joe watch out you know you can step on it but don't step on it You'd, you'd have a more urgency if you like Joe. Maybe if you don't like Joe, it's like, 
I tried, Joe. But if, if you really like Joe, there will be an urgency. Don't step on a needle. It's going to kill you. So Jesus isn't being mean. His seriousness and urgency are matched the direness of the situation. Jesus isn't overblowing things. Well, well, Jesus, take it down a notch. But he is showing the reality of our predicament. Verse 46, we go on. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, he was still saying these things. Behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. Again, this is connected. This is not just random. All of a sudden, like, oh, it's just happenstance. Mother and brother's here. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There are similar instances in the Synoptic Gospels on this section, but here the context may seem a little different, perhaps to show us something else, but again, perhaps not so different. We'll get into that now. Jesus' mother and brothers are outside, presumably because of the large crowd sizes. I mean, if you can heal any disease and demons just flee from you, you're going to attract the crowd. And maybe they thought they had right of access to Jesus because of their familial ties. So they sent someone, hey, I can't get through. There's too many people. Why don't you come to us? I'm here, or we're here. And Jesus' reply to this messenger is very interesting. Jesus' reply is, who are my mother and my brothers? Who is my family? It did not mean his mother and brothers outside weren't his family. But who is family? That's the question. Who is my fam? Family were people who could always get access to you. Family are people that had a claim on you. You go, this is my mother. This is my brother. This is my sister. This is my father. This is my grandfather. My grandmother, my aunt, my uncle, etc. It signifies there is a relationship, a deep relationship. Even secular people know, all people in the world know, that this relationship between family is sacred. This is a sacred relationship in a family. And we take deep offense if someone were to harm or badmouth our family members. Don't talk about my family like that. And our most intimate moments are shared with our family. Who is my family, Jesus is asking. And he stretches out his hands and he points to his disciples. Here is my family. And he adds, whoever does the will of my father is my family. There are at least two takeaways here. Who were his disciples? The ones that he pointed to? We read this. Who were his disciples? The ones that he called. The people who are born again. And the second part is, who are his disciples? Those that were in proximity to them. He could literally point them out. He was literally able to go, that's him. That's him. So who are his disciples? The ones that Jesus calls and the ones that are in close proximity to him. And if you are a Christian, you have been personally called by the master king himself. And that invitation is for you to be in close proximity with him. Isn't that amazing? 
Number two, the takeaway here from the statement is we are now able to do the will of the Father. We are now able to do the will of the Father. You know, doing the works weren't prerequisite to be a disciple. We, worked on, we, we went over this, right? But works identify you as a disciple. Works aren't a prerequisite to be a disciple, but works identifies you as a disciple. If God were your father, you would love me. Disciples are able to do the, wor- the will of God because they are family of God. How do I do the will of God is a big question that people ask. How do I do the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? That, that's, a, that's a very popular question. What is the will of God for my life? But that's an interesting question because I believe that people translate or understand that question to be more like this. What's the will of God for my life really is asking, should I take this job, go to this college, marry this person? What's the will of God for my life? Essentially, when we go, should I take this job, go to this college, marry this person? Essentially, what we are asking is, God, show me my future. Show me my future. You know, we seek, we really want to know the future, but that's closed. We don't know the future. We don't know the future. The will of God, however, is revealed in this way. In the Bible and the scripture, tells us it's delighting in his law. Studying his word. That's what the apostles did, the disciples did. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they studied his word every day. Finding out what pleases God and joyfully obeying him. And in that sense, it is abundantly clear where we can find out what the will of God is. What is the will of God? It's right there in the word. There's a popular saying that we use. The saying is, blood is thicker than water. People use it to reference family. But no one really knows why, I mean, I was looking it up. Uh, no one really knows why uh, these two things are used in this idiom, blood is thicker than water. I get the blood part, okay, I guess. My sister's my blood, not really, like she has a different blood type, whatever, but I get it. I, I get it that some people, oh, yeah, family, but it's like water just totally, I don't, I don't understand. Looked it up in like 1783, someone wrote blood thicker than water and eat ham and cheese whenever you want. I was like, ah, that doesn't help at all. And so uh, people have now used this term, blood is thicker than water, to be like, that's, that's right. This is my fam. You know, this is my family. Blood is thick in the water. It's like, what's water mean? It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> blood. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a nerd, you're gonna look. Is blood really thicker than water? By how much? What's the viscosity? So the viscosity rating of blood is like 0. 0, uh, 0.0015, and the viscosity of water is 0. 0.0009 on average, right? And so it is thicker, about 75% thicker, and. Uh, is that what it means? Now we know why blood is thicker than water. No, obviously not. What does blood is thicker than water mean? And there's another saying that people are, are starting to use. They think it's ancient, but I, I don't think it is. There's no evidence of it. It's a, but they're, they're now, people are now saying the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And people are saying that the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And it's not family anymore. What they mean by the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. 
what they're really saying is when we fight a, a battle together, the blood that's shed binds us stronger than any familial tie we have. So if you go out to war and you shed blood with your brother in the battlefield, that ties you stronger than any mother, father, brother, or sister. So people are saying that. But is there evidence that this is the real ancient saying no? So <clears throat> in the end, what do I think? I think that there is this tie. This is, this is just incredible for us. Humans have this tie to blood. We, we understand this blood is something incredibly precious. And to be tied with blood is to be tied with something incredibly precious. There is a time in the Bible where blood was used to stave off oncoming judgment and wrath. There was a time in the Bible where blood was used to stave off the oncoming judgment. And the Israelites would take the blood of the lamb and they would paint it on their doorframe like this. And when the Lord's wrath would come, it would pass over the house with the blood on it. It signified the lamb who was to come to shed blood, shed his blood for our sins, evil and wretchedness. So the question is, blood is thicker than water. Sure, scientifically it's true. I don't know exactly why it's that, why we, we say that. But the real question is, whose blood are you covered with now? Whose blood are we bonded with now? And what can be thicker than the blood of Christ? Robert Coleman wrote in his uh, book, Written in Blood, about uh, a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. Some of you may be familiar with this story, but a doctor explained that his little sister had the same disease that he had when he was younger. So he recovered from it two years earlier, but now his little sister, her only chance of recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. So since the, the two, two, two children in that book had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. And so the doctor would ask in the story, will you give your blood to Mary, Mary's little sister? The older brother's name was Johnny. And it says, Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. And then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children are wheeled into the hospital room, right? Mary, because of the disease, is pale and thin. Johnny is robust and healthy because he conquered the disease, but neither spoke. And when they, their eyes met, Johnny grinned. And the nurse inserted uh, the needle into Johnny's arm. Johnny's smile started to fade. And he watched the blood flow through the tube. And shakily, he asks, the doctor, doctor, when do I die? It was only then that the doctor realized that why Johnny hesitated. Johnny hesitated, his lip trembled, because when he thought that he needed to donate his blood, he would be dying and giving up his life. But he did. He said, yes, I would do that. Sure, for my sister. He made this great decision. But Johnny didn't die. We know that someone who did die, who gave us his blood, all throughout life, people have tried to figure out what blood is precious. People have even tried, medically, tried to infuse animal blood with zero success. Animal blood does not work. Animal blood is a symbol of what was to come. And now we have human blood. Human blood works sometimes, but it doesn't work forever. It doesn't always last, right? We all die. But there is 
and eternal blood that we are given. And this eternal blood of Christ is what we have been given, what we have been transfused and infused with. We live in the midst of an evil and adulterous generation, but praise be to God. Our hope is in Christ, and his arm is not too short that he cannot save. His ears are not too dull that he cannot hear. But while our sins and iniquities separated us from God, he drew us near to him. And his promise is that he will raise us up in the last day. This hope is never failing. This faith is assured because of his blood, and this love knows no bounds. And if you are a disciple of Christ, Jesus points to you and calls you family. And who can separate you from him now? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of, Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the one that points and goes, What's up, fam? You're my family. And who can separate us from him then? That's the promise we have in Jesus Christ. That's who we place our trust in. Praise be to God. Let's pray.